Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that considers all aspects of cars and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have news stories, including the next-generation Toyota fuel cell vehicle running on hydrogen, confirmed in small numbers for Australia. And in a major issue, we talk to Howard Collins, the Director of Operations for Transport for New South Wales, after the opening of the latest major tunnel in Sydney. In our feedback section, we have some things that are coming up and some that have passed. And there's another major interview, this time with Richard Calver from the National Road Transport Association about strengthening protections for consumers and small businesses from unfair contracts. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. Or you can go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City. So let's rev the program up. Let's start with the news. Toyota's hydrogen fuel cell car, the Marais, was first shown back in 2014 at the Los Angeles Motor Show. They have sold over 10,000 worldwide, but never on the Australian market. Now some 20 will be brought to Australia next year for selected business and government fleets. The first deliveries are expected to coincide with the commissioning of a solar-powered hydrogen production site and refuelling station in the Melbourne suburb of Altona. The latest model Marais incorporates some major new features, with rear-wheel drive and three hydrogen tanks, previously two, which allows seating capacity to be increased to five from four. The Australian government has shown some support for this emerging sector through the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and Australian Renewable Energy Agency. Most recently, $300 million of investment funding for hydrogen energy projects has been announced to help develop this technology. The New South Wales government seems keen to follow South Australia and implement a tax on the use of electric vehicles because they don't contribute through the fuel tax. But why not a user-pay system for all vehicles? Not just a few big tolls on the motorways, but a moderate user-based tax on where, when and how you travel. Public servants must implement government policy, but they must also firstly advise on what is feasible and preferable. Howard Collins, the Director of Operations for Transport for New South Wales, sees technical options for the future. Cars in the future will incorporate all sorts of means of ensuring that the finance is is managed in the way, whether it's by type of travel or location or type of vehicle. The thing is, we have lots of data now. It's a question of understanding what's the best way of moving forward. When the first Mini came onto the market in 1959, it clearly put practicality ahead of tradition. It was not your typical car. Now, the current Mini brand has a new concept vehicle, the Urbanaut. It's a small car with a people-mover shape and rounded corners and edges. It's not unlike the early models of the Daewoo Matiz. That's not a compliment. Mini says that modern technology, such as automation, can improve the exterior and interior design. 
Well, they actually said it improves the enclave of personal space. They also said the Minivision Urbanaut uses three curated mini moments for usage scenarios. There's chill when you relax, wonderlust when you work while you are being driven, and the vibe when you socialise. The road test of the future will have a whole new approach and language. All Australian governments have agreed to strengthen protections for consumers and small businesses from unfair contract terms. Richard Calver, the Compliance and Workforce Relations Advisor for the National Road Transport Association, describes some of the contract conditions. Well, first of all, if you're being paid on 90, 120 days, you're not a bank, but you're financing that other business. That seems to be increasing with the pandemic being used as an excuse. The second example is that very small time slots, 15 minutes, for example, to be met, puts undue pressure on drivers, it puts undue pressure on operators. And we've seen one contract, for example, if you don't meet that very tightly defined time slot, you're deemed not to have delivered the goods, you don't get paid. But Richard also said that the revision does not go far enough. Many people are concerned about the uncontrolled use of more and more scooters on our footpaths. The Voy company has announced that their e-scooters will include an artificial intelligence system. With high-end machine vision, sensors and AI algorithms, an e-scooter can assess if it is in a heavily pedestrianised area and reduce its speed. The scooters will also detect the kind of surface or lane that they are riding on, bike lane, pavement or road, and respond with appropriate measures. Voy is also pursuing more of their ambassadors on the street to help people ride safely, answer questions and monitor scooter activity, increase collaboration with the police, continually improving their geofencing systems, which creates a virtual geographic boundary, enabling software to trigger a response, such as limiting speed, when a mobile device enters or leaves a particular area, and introduce number plates on all scooters. And that has been the news. What are we doing to cope with, to adjust to the changes happening in Sydney that influence how, when and why we travel. It's not only population growth, but land use changes. Now, the New South Wales government has just opened the North Connex Tunnel in the northwest of Sydney from Pennant Hills to Warunga. What are the impacts of this road, not just for those who use it, but for those who are affected by it, which is basically the entire community, regional and local? We are privileged to have on the line Howard Collins, who is the Director of Operations for Transport New South Wales. Howard, I appreciate your time greatly. Thank you very much. Thank you. The tunnel. At the southern end, the big effort has been to improve turning movements from north to west and, and back again. What does that tell us about the changing nature of the metropolitan area, particularly for freight? Well, certainly it shows that this is this one of the missing links really for national freight and connecting obviously the motorways together because when you stood before North Connects Open uh, on Pennant Hills Road it was a truck after truck after truck and when you looked at the size of some of those trucks 
they were coming from Melbourne, beyond, and heading north or heading south. So it's a real arterial connection. And as we know, vehicles have got larger, uh, they're moving more touch, and therefore we've got to make sure this motorway connection and the tunnel is able to cope with you know, big vehicles and volume. And they're going out to the western suburbs a lot. We've often had a general image of the west as dormitory suburbs, but they're more and more becoming a hive of many activities, aren't they? Absolutely. When you look at the investment in public transport and roads by the New South Wales government, people talk about, you know, $100 billion in the next five years. Why are we doing this? We're opening up the arteries and veins of, of particularly Western Sydney to ensure that the three city concepts, of which one, obviously the Parkman city, uh, is really going to grow. And there are huge developments, whether you look at the intermodal terminal at Moorbank, whether you look at the development of the of the airport, whether you look at Western Airport, uh, if you look at that, it is growing. And certainly road networks and rail networks are critical. And really, they've got to be done ahead of the game rather than many times in the past I've seen around the world, we do it in, in hindsight. Hmm. Being ahead of the game has to try and get some understanding of what the game will look like in the future. Are we getting better at that? Well, I think we've been knocked for six by obviously the impact of what COVID has had. No one, I don't think any planner or visionary person had any idea what this would do. But I think we have to look ahead of the game. We can't look at what the, you know, 40%, 50% down on public transport. Roads are still holding up, but quite different. We've got to look ahead 20, 30, 40 and 50 years to say, what will this mean? We will no doubt still want to move huge amounts of goods materials and people but not only for work but maybe for leisure around uh, australia and particularly on this eastern seaboard side where um you know if you think about it we were still running all this heavy vehicle usage through what really was a road designed for sort of bullocks and oxen going through there and a few horses pennant hills road over time I just outgrew, you know, and was overwhelmed by the impact of the traffic. Now it's great to see, you know, traffic's flowing through the uh, North Connects and people are saving 10, 15, some people even say 20 minutes uh, travel time. It is also putting arterial traffic in its proper place. If Los Angeles is obese with freeways, there's no need for us to be anorexic. Absolutely. (laughs) Great phrase. We have had an, an image in the past of you build a road and it then becomes a free-for-all. You, you talked about technology. Do you think that technology will push us to a more managed way in which we will control the use of the road lane by lane or who might be involved in it? Is it less of a free-for-all? Free yeah, I think so. I mean, um, I really do think from a safety point of view, there's a lot of technology out there being pioneered, but at some stage in the future, the automation of vehicles on freeways to obviously ensure the capacity can improve because that's the one, one lesson I've learned about automation of railways is that you increase the capacity, the future of, you know, actually working out how and when people actually pay for services through roads, I'm sure is all up for debate. There are many, many discussions on this at the moment. I think the, the important thing is, build the infrastructure of the future but as you say Los Angeles you know 12 14 lane highways are still 
not moving anywhere. So it's it's also about not just building capacity, it's how we deal with it, who actually has priority, and what does this mean for the future? Because there may well be an opportunity to sort of bring resources together to amalgamate technologies, which really does mean we're sharing the roads and the rail in the right way. Think globally, but act locally. The benefits of something like the North Connex is really to the local streets. It's often sold in terms of improved travel time, but what's happening in the local area? What have you seen? Pennant Hills Road is a transformation in itself with less heavy, large vehicles around with the volume of traffic now uh, mainly reduced to small vans and, and, and cars. People are feeling the difference. There are 10 schools along that street, mm. along that uh, road itself, the 21 sets of traffic lights, and it has. And I've been surprised by the positive outcomes that people are saying already in terms of their environment, people cr- safely crossing the street now. Certainly the opportunity for people to feel the environment has been balanced, whereas before it was just one block of huge vehicles, you know, pounding up and down a very, very narrow environment and stop styling all the time because with all those traffic lights, I dare say, you know, everyone was um, spending twice as much on diesel fuel. With COVID around Australia, there's been a lot of surveys put on hold. Is that a mistake? Do we need to make sure that we're measuring things constantly and analysing them? Every Day of the week, uh, we are looking at what traffic flows are. We know our transport management centre does an amazing job understanding real time what's going on, but also we've got a lot of data now. We're introducing our smart motorway network on the M4. We're starting to use the technology through partners like Google to understand the movement of traffic because um, with our mobile phones, we, we provide a rich sense of data you know and, and it is a lot more accurate generally speaking if you're looking at your google maps and where there's orange and where there's red is where the congestion is a few years ago it was you know half hour later um the data would be sent to to you and and it wouldn't you know you'd feel it was unreliable nowadays the information we're getting for us as transport management you know controllers is pretty good and uh, certainly linked with a lot of good cctv we're able to work with our colleagues in Transurban to make sure we keep things flowing. Can I go to the tolling? Mm. Because this is embracing a new approach, isn't it? It is. And I I know a lot of people, and this is something which has been raised, a lot of people are saying, you know, gosh, it's a hell of a lot of money. You know, if I use it twice a day for five days a week, as a motorist, it's $7.99. And as a truck driver, it's $23.97. You know, people are saying it's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. But I suppose in some respects, maybe we should all have meters sitting on our car, which show not only the fuel being burned, but also the depreciation and uh, and, <laughs> and all the other things which go with it. You're also shown that you're prepared to take on new things to better manage the system, to get the benefits for all, by by putting a fine on trucks who don't do the, the what we, we might say is the right thing. Yes. Can that be taken further? Uh, you know, is that really something where we might have the total hierarchy, where we understand where you want to go and, and, and perhaps a tolling mechanism that is more broadly based? I think certainly, that, that again, it's linked with technology. I think there will be new methods of understanding 
for any form of use of, um, you know, I suppose public public uh, roadways or um, uh, types of vehicles or types of use. And we're guided by government policy. You know, my, my personal view is that obviously there there are many things we can do, and I think it is. Sometimes you have to pull people in the right direction to do the right thing. Sometimes you have to push them and motivate them and encourage them. But I think in some ways this is a really interesting, North Connect is an interesting and new exercise of tolling and also controlling the alternative route by a penalty to ensure people don't do the wrong thing. What I hear there is to say that it's not an easy decision and we've got to move with understanding. It's often just a one-dimensional debate. If we, if we remember the memory of John Bradfield, he was responsible for the Harbour Bridge, but he also had other grand plans for Sydney. Do I understand that you're a bit of a fan of Bradfield? Absolutely. And of course, people think he was just purely a railman. He was certainly a engineer who built many uh, good roads and bridges as well. And and I think Bradfield was visionary for two reasons. He didn't think he could do this all himself just by some free thinking. He decided he would do a bit of a world tour and go and look. And I think that's something we've always got to remember is you know, we never want to be the bleeding edge of technology. We want to actually see what others are doing around the globe and have the opportunity to sort of choose the best parts of that. And I think that's important. So Bradfield really did bring in his thinking of how do you get this ever-growing Sydney work, city working and bringing a metropolitan electrified rail system as well as some good roadways really did start to open the city. It is a tragedy in some ways, the First World War and also the Depression. Um, I have maps on my wall uh, in my office which show railway lines which are still being banned by Metro 100 or so years later or or, or schemes which would have made the city much more accessible. We've got to think about what are the things we need. Is it small electric vehicles working out of a hub to do that last kilometre delivery? Vehicles, multi-train computerised vehicles on freeways being almost stacked like a railway train in a road environment. Now, those things will be the things of the future, and I'm certainly looking forward to seeing some of them appear. And I think Australia is a great place to trial this stuff because it needs to ensure that we manage the distances that we have and getting freight around is it's probably more challenging than most other countries around the world. I think that's a very important point that, in many ways, trucking is tr- is emulating the principles of railways in, in some ways. Uh, some will work, some won't. Platooning may or may not work, for example. But it is a case of us also maybe using corridors differently. You mentioned, you know, electric vehicles and that, and small vehicles going, say, into... CBD type areas, not just one, but the the many. Mm. Mm. That means a corridor, an electric vehicle. Is it in, in Norway that they're saying you can do it, but you've got to be below a certain sound level? That's the critical performance. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think that's that's a challenge. I think some electric vehicles now are much more friendly from a noise point of view. I think that the, the challenge sometimes with electric vehicles, they're almost too quiet if you're mixing pedestrians with um, electric vehicles. So there is a balance there. But I think um, we're seeing, you know, even the, the advent of the Deliveroo cyclist with his electric bike or many other things, that's starting to, the technology is driving itself when it comes to that, that sort of last stage of the technology. But in, in big buildings and uh, condensed cities, we've just got to get that right. 
Yeah, and it's diverse, but it's important that we are looking at it. I've taken a great deal of your time, Howard, but I, I really do appreciate it. No problem at all. Always like the chat. It is something everyone's interested in. It affects every single one of us here in New South Wales and in Australia. So, And it's worth listening to everybody and getting people's views because that's what we need to do. So thanks very much for allowing me to personally share what my thoughts are. I think the challenge for us is you never know what's around the corner in transport. I certainly uh, have been gobsmacked what's happening, but North Connects, great technology. I think it's a little opening for our eyes for the future. I look forward to those openings greatly. Uh, Howard, thank you very much for your time. All the best. Bye-bye. And a full interview with Howard is on our website at drivenmedia.com.au. This is Overdrive across Australia. Our attitude to truck drivers is usually based around our interaction with them on the road. COVID-19 has expanded our perception of truckies by highlighting the delivery of goods as an essential service and therefore the people involved as essential workers. But it's not just about driving in traffic. It is running a business and we need conditions that are fair to all players to get the best results. The National Road Transport Association, NatRoad, welcomes a statement by Federal Assistant Treasurer Michael Suka that all Australian governments have agreed to strengthen protections for consumers and small businesses from unfair contract terms. But NatRoad thinks that it should go further. So just what is happening out there? Richard Calver is the Compliance and Workplace Relations Advisor for the National Road Transport Association. I asked Richard, what are some examples of poor contract conditions? Well, first of all, the payment terms. If you're being paid on 90, 120 days, you're not a bank, but you're financing that other business. And that seems to, that seems to be increasing with the pandemic being used as an excuse. That's number one. The second example that we've given to Treasury in our submission seeking for strengthening of the unfair terms law is that very small time slots, 15 minutes for example, to be met puts undue pressure on drivers, it puts undue pressure on operators and we've seen one contract for example, if you don't meet that time slot, that very tightly defined time slot you're deemed not to have delivered the goods. You don't get paid for a subsequent delivery, which you must do at, again at the time that the customer has nominated. Those are two. Hold harmless clauses or indemnity clauses are, are also common where the transport operator is required to provide an indemnity in circumstances where damage is done, even though that damage is not the fault of the operator or driver. So there are lots of terms that we've seen in contracts in the transport industry that are unfair and the current law isn't inadequate in dealing with them. The ACCC has taken up several cases. Yes. Have they struggled to win them because of the limitations of the law, in your opinion? The current law also is problematic in that if a term is unfair, it will be void, but it can only be declared such by a court so it can be void you've got to go to court and merely declaring it to be void doesn't mean that it creates a precedent for other 
unfair terms of the same kind. To go to court takes time and money. Absolutely. The ACCC has taken a number of transport cases to court where they've won, but that doesn't mean the next company down the road has to change its unfair contract terms. So that's one of the unfairnesses that exist that will be fixed by the, hopefully, by the law that the government has said they're going to introduce. See, if I get caught in traffic, that's hardly my problem. If there's a breakdown, then all the penalty, and I use the word advisedly, seems to go to the small business operator. That's right. Even though at law a penalty provision can't be enforced, what these contracts do is define them as key performance indicators. Yes. And therefore, if you break that key performance indicator, they say a pre-agreed assessment of damages is a certain amount. So that's how they get around the problem with, at law, a penalty provision applying. So let me just reiterate that unfair contract terms now are not currently illegal. They're just voidable. They should be illegal. And that's what we want to happen so that the current Australian consumer law allows a potentially unfair contract term to be challenged in a court so it can be declared void, but it doesn't prohibit such a term being included in a contract and therefore on each instance you've got to take court action. That's a very unsatisfactory law. There surely must be poor management if you drive your suppliers out of the market and have to change. Is there the dilemma that there's always someone else who wants to to run a business like a, a delivery or trucking business? Is that part of the power of those who are issuing these sorts of contracts? You've put your finger on a very important point that the industry is highly competitive, extraordinarily competitive, and the profit margins around two two to three percent. They're common. They're not a at a sustainable level. So that's translated to lower rates of capital expenditure in the industry and certain banks, uh, the ANZ in particular, have made comments about that saying that, you know, the CapEx sales is remarkably correlated as 2% less than our global peers and that helps explain why our fleet age, the age of trucks, is twice as old is that in the USA. So the average age of our fleet is 14 years and it's six and a half years in the USA. So that highly competitive nature of our industry brings down those margins and also has an effect on capital that's expended. So what we hope for uh, is that the education that I talked about earlier and the unfair contracts law will help um, the competition at that end of the market. I've seen statistics on how old our trucks are, and sadly, quite often, the the older trucks are used in urban areas. Those that go down the Hume Highway are probably some of the most efficient around, but it's in the urban area where you get local pollution problems, let alone issues of safety. We need to be managing to the whole issue, not just the short-term profit of some companies, even those over another. Absolutely. And you're seeing from our hymn sheet, if you like, well, we, we don't believe that there is sufficient incentive in the market for the purchase of new vehicles. In fact, the opposite's true um, with stamp duty considerations on registration. 
uh, with one exception in New South Wales, where they've re- they've abolished stamp duty on new trailer purchases. Um, when you add three three percent extra to the cost of your purchase at the point where you buy a new truck, that's a substantial disincentive. Whereas if there were incentives to per- purchase newer vehicles, the sorts of problems you're talking about would be reduced substantially. Richard, lovely to talk to you. I appreciate your time. Thank you. And yours. Thank you. And that was Richard Calver, the Compliance and Workplace Relations Advisor for the National Road Transport Association, NatRoads. It's an interesting and complex issue, and the basis of this should be a sense of fairness and a sense of understanding the impacts, not just to those who are working the system, but those who are affected by it. The full interview is on our website at drivenmedia.com.au. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Howard Collins, Richard Kalvner, Brian Smith and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or there's always our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.